Hallelujah. Well, let's go ahead and bow our head as we come to it. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your goodness and your great love. I thank you for, for who you are, Lord, and I thank you that we can spend time in your word studying and learning and just getting to know you better. This morning, Father, as we, as we dive in, I pray, Lord, that our hearts are ready to receive what you have for us, that we would grow, that we would mature in our faith, we would mature in our, our relationship with you, and we would just have a greater revelation of who you are. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on uh, uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be making our way through it verse by verse as we often do. I feel like this microphone's sneaking up behind me. I'm just going to put it away. I don't want it to get me later. Hallelujah. Um, but we're going to go ahead and continue on uh, probably for the next several weeks, uh, probably close to the end of the year. We're going to be making our way through 2 Corinthians. And uh, I think this is such a good way to go through the Bible because you don't get to skip the hard parts. You know, there's, sometimes there's hard parts in the Bible. How many of you guys know that? We don't get to skip those when we go verse by verse. You know, when I write a message and I have a, a point that I want to make, it's really easy to, to, to choose scriptures that support that, and, and I think that's good from time to time. But I also think it's good to make sure that we take everything verse by verse in context as a whole, so that way we're not missing anything, and we actually have what God wants for us. So as we jump into uh, 2 Corinthians, I just want to give you some background. Joseph, Pastor Joseph gave a little bit last week, but um, Paul wrote this. Uh, Paul wrote actually the first letter to the Corinthians um, in his third missionary journey. He was on his uh, while he was in Ephesus. He wrote that letter to them, and then this letter he's actually uh, after Ephesus. He went on to Troas, and then he makes his way to Macedonia, and that's actually where he writes this letter. It's about a year after the first letter in 56 A.D., and he writes it from Macedonia. So this letter is probably written about eight years after he planted the church, about as old as we are as a church, almost. We're not quite eight years. Um, but he, he's talking to this church in Corinth, and Corinth is a messed up place. Corinth is, uh, it's the heart of an important trade route, in the ancient, uh, trade route in the ancient world, so that way we got all kinds of people coming through it. It's a big giant melting pot, if you will. It kind of looks like the United States. A bunch of different people from different backgrounds are coming through it. We actually had the athletic games at, uh, games at Corinth happen in Corinth, and that's why they called them the athletic games at Corinth. It makes sense. But it happened there, and it, was, it almost rivaled the Olympics by how big it was. The theater that they, that they uh, were in accommodated 20,000 people. And then there was actually a roofed indoor theater there that, that housed 3,000 people. I mean, that's, this, this is a big place. It's a, it's, a, it's a city with a lot of people. And then if you were to walk through the city of Corinth, you would see temples and shrines and altars that would be dotting the city everywhere that you looked. And they actually had a thousand prostitutes that made themselves available at the, at the Greek goddess Aphrodite's temple. A thousand prostitutes. I mean, this place is a mess. They are doing stuff that, that even people today would be like, what? The south side of the marketplace was lined with taverns equipped with underground cisterns for cooling drinks. I mean, this place, this isn't some podunk town with just a few people. in it. this place is huge. And it has a reputation for sexual immorality. It has a reputation for religious diversity and a lot of corruption as well. I don't know if that reminds you of any place. 
It was actually noted for its lax morals and scandalous lifestyle. And it's a completely pagan society. And if you think about it, this creates many difficulties for the, the new believers that are living there. Much like today, especially as things are accelerating, we're going to find more and more difficulties as believers living in this country as, as this type of lifestyle lacks morals and, and all this crazy stuff going on becomes more mainstream and accepted. And what we believe becomes less and less accepted. You know, on one hand, I, uh, I think about that and it, 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 it scares me a little bit. You know, like, man, things are going to get hard. But on the other hand, it makes me excited because that just means there are so many people that are in need of the truth. There are so many people that need us to share the truth with them because they're lost without it. So Paul plants this church in Corinth. Um, he was there. He did it with Priscilla and Aquila. He was there for about a year and a half. And you can read about that in, in Acts chapter 18. And you'll remember after he plants this church, when we went through the book of 1 Corinthians, this church is all of a sudden a mess. I mean, obviously things are crazy going on around them, but the problem is they're letting too much of the outside into the church. Things are getting nuts. Matter of fact, you remember there was even one guy who was messing around with his, with his father's wife. It, uh, it, the, the, the church was starting to get infiltrated by the outside. They were letting too much outside influence in. Also, maybe a little bit uh, reminiscent of what's happening today in the church. So sometime after he left, Paul hears what's going on and he sends them the first letter. And he basically uh, spends some time correcting them and rebuking them. The whole letter is actually about correcting and rebuking, for the most part, what they were doing, trying to get them back in line. Well, after he sends that letter, while he's in Macedonia, he, he talks to Titus and he gets a response to what's happening in that letter, and that's what spurs this letter. As he heard how they responded to the first letter, and now he is uh, sending this letter to respond to that response, if you will. And the problem that he's dealing with is he's going to deal with some of the same things, a couple of the same things, but he's also going to add a bunch of new stuff that he has to correct and deal with as well. And you remember the first letter was primarily a call for unity to the church, but this letter is more of a call for unity with his ministry. Because what's happening is, is after that first letter got sent, people that are trying to undermine Paul, they're going and saying, hey, he's not a real apostle. They're saying, look at how much he's suffering. If you're familiar with the life of Paul, you know he goes through some stuff. He has some difficulties. He's stoned and shipwrecked and, and uh, put in prison and beaten and all kinds of things. And they're saying, look, look how he's suffering. If he was a real apostle, he wouldn't suffer like that. If he was a real apostle, he wouldn't be going through any of that hard stuff. Which I think is a silly argument because what if somebody said, Jesus isn't really the Son of God. If he was, why did he get beaten and then put on a cross? Obviously, difficulties in your life do not necessarily mean that God is not with you. Amen. So, Paul now is using this letter to defend his ministry and defend his behavior. Because really, the, the problem that they're going on is that in his last letter, he says, you know what, I plan on coming down to be with you guys. And through different circumstances, through different stuff going on, he wasn't able to make it. He wasn't able to come down. And now they're saying, Oh, look, he says he's going to come, but he's not going to come. 
he says one thing and he does another. He's, he's wishy-washy. He can't make up his mind or, or he's not going to come because of, of selfish reasons. He doesn't care about you. This is all about him. And he's saying, no, guys. That's not actually what's going on. And then in addition to defending his ministry and defending his decisions, he is also going to once again give us that, those instructions for, for living a godly and holy life. He's going to teach about the gospel. And he's also going to speak about giving, which I know is everybody's favorite subject. But all in all, I think this is going to be great instruction for us as a church. One, because the United States isn't too far off from Corinth and, and, and how things are going. But we can always learn from this stuff to grow and to live like God wants us to live. Because as I've always said, technology changes, but people don't. So the same instruction that was good for the Corinthian church is good for us, amen? The technology might be different, but the same attitudes and issues of heart are the same that still need to be dealt with. Now you remember last week as Joseph got started in the first part of this chapter, verses uh, 1 through, actually I think we're doing 12 through 24. He did 1 through 11 last week. But the last part of that chapter was, uh, uh, he was talking about basically the affliction that the Paul and, and the people with him were going through and also the affliction of the Corinthians and the comfort that God brings. And you, and you remember, comfort was mentioned so many times because it was important to know that, yeah, there might be affliction, but that doesn't mean God's not with you. Matter of fact, God's comforting you in those situations. And because they were being comforted, because they were being afflicted, because how many know you can't really be comforted if you're not afflicted? So because they were afflicted, they were comforted, and because they were comforted, they could now comfort others in a more effective manner. That was kind of the message of last week. And he finally thanked them for their prayers that got them through all the issues. Because um, he said, you know, we, were, we thought we were going to die in Asia, but their prayers, God answered and helped see them through. And then now he's really going to begin in this half of the chapter to begin to deal with the uh, idea of, of defending his ministry. Like I said, Paul had spent the that was supposed to come back to Corinth. And you can read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He says, I'm going to come back to Corinth. And for whatever reason, he doesn't make it. And uh, change had planned. I mean, there was obviously a change of plans or there'd be no need for this letter. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they were saying that he was deceptive and careless. And they were just spreading lies about Paul and his motives. So Paul begins his defense now. 2 Corinthians 1.12, it says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So like I said, Paul's going to now take a quick moment to defend his decisions. And that decision that he's primarily dealing with is the, why he stayed in Macedonia and didn't come to Corinth. And we're going to break this down a bit. He says the first thing, For our boast is this. Anybody, everybody knows what the word boast means? You know, what Paul is, is basically saying here is he's saying that, that he can affirm what he's about to say. Everything after the, for our boast, he can affirm with great confidence about what he's going to say. It's something that he could be proud of. He didn't have to be ashamed of what he was saying. It wasn't cloaked in deception. It wasn't cloaked in lies. What he was about to say is something he could be proud of and not be ashamed of. And he says, for our boast is this. And then he says, the testimony of our conscience. The Bible Exposition Commentary says this, and I thought it was really good. It says, our English word conscience 
comes from two Latin words, com, meaning with, and sire, meaning to know. Conscience is that inner faculty that knows with our spirit and approves when we do right, but accuses when we do wrong. Conscience is not the law of God, but it bears witness to the law. So what Paul's saying is that very thing that bears witness, that, 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 that approves when you do right and accuses when you do wrong, he says, the testimony of my conscience. What he's saying is that what I'm about to say, my conscience bears witness. I don't feel any guilt. I don't feel any shame. I'm not lying to you. I'm not being deceptive. He says, there's no shame or guilt in what I'm about to express. So our boasts, what I'm proud to say, because I, I'm not guilty, I have a good conscience about what I'm about to say. He says, that we behaved in the world with simplicity. What does that mean, we behaved in the world with simplicity? Well, it's obvious. There was no complication. It was just simple. All right, we'll go on from it. What he means by simple is that, that uh, we weren't trying to deceive you. We weren't making stuff up. There wasn't some big complex pattern to try to pull something over on you guys. We behaved simply. Our intention was to come back. It wasn't some big thing to pull the wool over your eyes to make you trust us or to make you love us. He says, and he goes on to say, it was with godly sincerity. Once again, there was, there was sincereness. Has anybody ever told somebody something with all sincereness, but then you had to change those plans? It wasn't like you were trying to trick them. It wasn't like you were trying to pull the wool over their eyes. It wasn't like, sometimes that just happens. And many times we feel terrible about it. It's not what we wanted, but that's just the way life goes. So he says, listen, I behaved with simplicity. I'm not trying to be complex and deceptive. And with sincerity, what I told you was true. And he says, not by earthly wisdom, because that was the other argument that they were making, right? He says, oh, Paul just wants to do everything for his own selfish desires. So the reason he came to them was not about his own thinking. It wasn't about his own selfish desires. It wasn't earthly wisdom. But it was by the grace of God that he didn't come down there to them. Now, this is an interesting thing, and, and we won't go into it too much right now, but at the end of, of today, we're going to see what Paul means by this. But he wants to make it clear, guys. Look, I can boast that we, based, we were, we were uh, living and behaving in simplicity with sincerity. It wasn't something that I made up just to be, make life better for myself, but actually, the reason I didn't come was because we were led by the grace of God to not come. It was actually for you the reason that I didn't come. And then finally he says, we acted supremely so towards you. He acted in a manner that his conduct was supreme towards them. You know, that's one of the things that in my life I want to make sure that no matter what, the way I behave is in a manner that it's, that, that it's supreme towards others. And what he means by that is he's, he's thinking about others. It's not selfish. Everything is for the good of others. Remember, Paul elsewhere teaches that, that uh, we should treat others, actually I think it's Peter, we should treat others as more important than ourselves. That's what he's saying. We acted in a manner that was supreme towards you. You were at the forefront of what we were doing. Nothing that we did was to undercut or undermine you. But sometimes stuff just happens. And he says that, my conscience bears witness that this is how we behaved. 
And then he goes on in 2 Corinthians 1, 13 through 14. It says, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. A misunderstanding is ultimately what has happened here. Paul wasn't able to make it back, and they misunderstood that as malice. They, and the truth is, is probably the church really didn't do that, but they ended up having people in their ears trying to convince them of something else. People that were, were in opposition to Paul or, or maybe even in competition with Paul were saying, oh no, you can't listen to him. Look, he's not even coming. And they begin to, to get in and they're listening to the gospel. They're hearing the gossip and they're, they're, it's getting in their head and now there's a misunderstanding. And Paul wanted to, to, to clear up this misunderstanding that was obviously causing hurt. That's why he says right here, we are not writing anything to you other than what you read and understand. Basically, what I'm writing is plain. What I'm writing is clear. He didn't want there to be any more misunderstandings. And I think as Christians, we have to be so careful of misunderstanding other people as well. Because also, all too often, the hurt that we feel, the, the, that, that pain that we feel is, is unintentional. It was never intended to be there. The saying goes that offense is more often received than it's given. Because we so often misunderstand somebody's intentions. And the problem with misunderstandings is they often lead to another misunderstanding, which often leads to another misunderstanding. And next thing you're down, a rabbit hole that's so deep that it can't be fixed, not because you can't work out the misunderstanding, but now you're filled with, with guilt and shame to even how you got to where you were at. So that's how Paul begins to write. He says, look, I'm not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. I want there to not be any complications. I want there to not be any misunderstandings. He says, I'm going to write carefully. And he says, I hope that you will fully understand. You know, that's Paul's hope, that there's no miscommunication, that there's no breakdown in trust, that there's nobody gets hurt because he wants them to understand clearly to what he said. And he says, as you partially understood us because the last time he was down there apparently there was only a partial understanding because if there was a full understanding we wouldn't have this we wouldn't have this misunderstanding in the first place you see the problem was is that it appears others were exploiting and encouraging mistrust in paul and in addition to questioning his motives for his behavior his actions for not coming back they begin to question his, his motives and his teachings as well. And they begin to question his authority as an apostle. And he says, but look, you partially understood us before that on the day of the Lord Jesus, we will boast of us and we will boast of you. He says, you know what? No matter what anybody else says, I want you to know that when the day of the Lord Jesus comes, we are going to boast of you. Because my teaching is true. How many know that if Paul's teaching wasn't true, if he was getting his doctrine wrong, then there would be no day of the Lord. There would be nobody there to celebrate. And they wouldn't see each other. There would be no opportunity to boast because everything Paul said was a lie. But he says, no, on that day, I'm going to boast of you. Because you heard my teaching and you responded because you were there. And he says, and you will boast of us. He says, you know what? I believe that on that day that you're going to be proud that I was your teacher. 
You know, you, you're, obviously there's some, some partial understanding, there's some miscommunication going on right now, but on that day, you are going to be happy. And you're going to rejoice because we were able to deliver to you the gospel and you responded to them. Paul was confident that this is what was going to happen. And then he continues on in verse 15. He says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. So what is this, this that he's referring to? So everything we just looked over, right? He was sure of his behavior towards them. He was sure that it was godly and it was sincere, that there was no deception. And he was sure of their receiving the gospel that, so that when Jesus came back, they would both, re, both rejoice for one another. These are the things he says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. He wanted to come see him again. The truth is, is that Paul loved these people. He had invested a year and a half of his time in this church and he continued to, to minister to them and to the guide them via letters over the, the years. And obviously we have the first letter to Corinthians. We know he's instructing them. So he loved them. He cared about them. And his plan was to come back. He says, guys, I wasn't trying to deceive you. I wasn't trying to pull one over you. This was actually my plan. This is what I wanted to do. And the fact that the plan changed doesn't nullify the sincerity or the intent that Paul had. The fact of the matter is sometimes things just don't work out. And I think we have to be careful that we don't take offense to that. You know, it's one of the things that we're always super cognizant of as, as pastors is we try to make plans with people and go and be with people, but we, we have to to be available to everyone in the church. We have to be there for them and, and we don't want anybody to be offended if we can't meet with them at one point because we have other plans. Or if we make plans with somebody and an emergency comes up, we hope that people wouldn't be offended at us and think, oh, those pastors, they just never have time for us. Because that's not the intent behind it. And sometimes things happen. Sometimes things change. Sometimes emergencies come up. But it doesn't change our intent. It doesn't change our love. And that's what Paul's saying. This doesn't change my intent and my love for you guys. Sometimes stuff just happens. I wanted you to have that second experience of grace. I wanted you to have that time with me. And he continues in 2 Corinthians 1, 16-17, I wanted to visit you on my, way back to, on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Once again, he's reiterating, guys, I wanted to come to you. Matter of fact, it looks like he wanted to come to them twice. He wanted to come from Macedonia to meet with them and then uh, on his way to Macedonia and then on his way back before he goes to Judea. He actually wanted to meet with them, but, but things changed, plans changed. And even though, they, once again, just because they changed multiple times doesn't mean it invalidated his intent as well. He wasn't being wishy-washy as he was being accused. He wasn't saying one thing and then doing another as he was being accused. But he says his plans were made from the input of the Holy Spirit. He says, look, my plans were to come to you, but was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make my plan according to the flesh? He says, no, I don't, I don't make plans according to the flesh. The Holy Spirit is always guiding Paul in everything that he wants to do. And he says, I didn't make plans to suit myself. 
And we know that Paul's, we read Paul's letters, we read the book of Acts and the history of Paul, we know that, that Paul's intent in ministry was not to appease his own flesh. It wasn't to suit himself. Matter of fact, like I said, quite the contrary with Paul because Paul put himself in so much harm's way in order to share the gospel, even when he knew this was coming. He was stoned, shipwrecked, in prison. He was beaten, and he ultimately gave his life for the gospel. You guys remember when he was on his way to Rome, he had someone come up to him and prophesied and took his belt off and wrapped it around his head. He said, this is to know whoever gets on this boat is going to be like this in chains. Paul even knew what was coming, and he was still willing to go. He did, he was, Paul always did as he was instructed by God. And he didn't do it to appease his own fleshly appetites and desires. And that's what he's trying to, to contrast to is because many men, he says, ready to say yes and yes and no and no at the same time, many men make plans to suit their own flesh, to make themselves happy, ready to say yes, yes, or no, no at a moment's notice, even if they're contradictory, just to make sure that they're doing okay making plans to see whichever's going to suit them better, playing both sides of the fence. But Paul says, this isn't me. And really what he's saying here is, he's not only declaring that that's not me, he's asking them, do you really think this is who I am? He says, guys, you know me. I spent a year and a half with you. You know my heart. Is this me? Is this who you think that I am? Says, do I was I vacillating? Do I make my plans this way? Guys, you know me. And he's asking them, don't you know my heart? See, I think this is the danger of getting caught up in other people's gossip because it, it allows us to start thinking things that we would never think of before. The funny thing is when we get wrapped up in what other people are saying, it almost steals the grace that we have for other people away. And he says, don't you know my heart and as i read this i can completely understand what paul is going through because there's so many times that i've had to make decisions or i've had to do things and and um i don't know if you guys know this but it turns out it's impossible for me to make everybody happy so sometimes when i make a decision it upsets out some people and doesn't others some people are happy some are not and and uh the truth is is that in my ministry i have hurt people without even realizing that i was doing it and my prayer in this always is that people would know who I am. They would know my heart and they wouldn't take things the wrong way. And truth, I hope they would just come talk to me about it so we can square things away. My intent is never to do these things and I pray that people would know my heart. And the truth is, is that everybody in this room, there's probably a time that I'm going to hurt you. It'll never be intentionally. But it might happen. And if it does, I pray that you would just come talk to me about it so we can work it out. We could clear up the misunderstandings that so often lead to division and hurt and brokenness. Because misunderstandings always lead to pain and damaged relationships. It's never intentional, but I can, I can feel what Paul is saying here. Don't you guys know me? Don't you know my heart? You know that I'm not vacillating. You know that I'm not making plans according to the flesh. And he says in verse 18 through 20, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, 
Sylvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now this is an interesting thing that Paul does here. Paul was just dealing with his behavior. He was just dealing with his decision to stay in Macedonia. And in his defense, he says basically, don't you know my heart? And then instead of responding directly to his change of plans, he begins to point out the stability of his ministry and his teaching. Which is an interesting thing, because the, the offense that he's primarily dealing with is his change of plans. But now he begins to defend his ministry. And like I said, people were using one to impact the other, to make a decision on the other. So he just goes straight to his word and his teaching. He says, let's go back and, and talk about how I, I taught you when I was with you. He says that as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Surely as God is faithful, in other words, it's a certainty. How many know there's no confusion if God is faithful? God is not sometimes faithful and sometimes not faithful. This is a sure thing, God's faithfulness. He says, so as surely as God is faithful, you can be certain that our word to you has not been yes and no. It hasn't been wishy-washy. It hasn't been confused. I haven't been telling you one thing and doing another or telling you one thing on the first day and telling you something else on the second day. He's basically saying that my preaching is not inconsistent and it's not contradictory. He says, I did not preach first one thing and then preach another. And he says, the reason is because the source of my Stability is Jesus Christ, who he's preaching. Jesus doesn't change from day to day, so what Paul was preaching wasn't changing from day to day. The stability of, of Paul's ministry was based on the stability of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is faithful and stable. Jesus does not vacillate. Can you say amen to that? We'd be in a bad way if some days he's like, I'm going to save you today, but maybe not tomorrow. But Jesus doesn't vacillate. He is stable. And God doesn't waver between his yes and his no. The scripture says, have I, uh, have I not said it and will I not do it? If God says something, we know that he's going to do it. He says, I'm not a man that I should lie or the son of man that I should change my mind. God does not vacillate back and forth. God is not wishy-washy. And every single one of God's promises, he says right here, says uh, all the promises of God find their yes in him every single one of God's promises concerning the Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus Christ there was no wishy-washiness there was no no uh, uh, ups and downs there was not most of them but not all of them because God is stable and and Paul says just as Jesus is faithful just as God is faithful and did not vacillate. And just as Paul did not vacillate in his teaching, the point that he's making here is if my teaching and my ministry didn't vacillate, then I'm not going to vacillate in my plans or my behavior either. He says if you're going to use one to discredit the other, I'm going I'm to tell you about one to, to, to strengthen the other. He says if, if, I'm, if I am solid in this area, why would I not be solid in another? And then he continues on. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. He has anointed us. He has also put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, the truth of their word, of Paul's word, what he was teaching was evident because it was God who had established the Corinthians with Paul. They were all tied together, established in the same Christ. 
There was no difference. It wasn't one thing for one person and another thing for the other person. There was stability and no vacillation in what he was teaching. It says it was God who anointed us. It was God who, who basically commissioned Paul and those working with Paul to do the work of the gospel. And he says that he also put his seal on us. How many know that, that when you get born again, God puts his seal on you? Because you're not your own anymore. This idea of, of, of a seal is, is actually an idea of ownership. At that point, you have been bought with a price. You are no longer your own. He says that He has anointed us, He's commissioned us, and He has put a seal on us, and He has given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. All of these things He's talking about is evidence of His Word not vacillating but being true, and they actually saw evidence of it. You'll remember that the first Corinthian church was no stranger to the Spirit of God. Matter of fact, they were getting so into it, Paul said, hey, you need to tone it back a little bit because God's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. You all can't be speaking in tongues to everybody at the same time. You're scaring people away. We need to do this stuff in order. And if you are going to speak in tongues in the church, you need a, an interpreter. You remember all of those things. So they weren't a stranger to the, to the Spirit. They were experiencing the Spirit. And Paul's saying this, this evidence of what we're saying is true. You have the Spirit, and He's given the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee of our, our salvation. Every single one of these things Paul is listing here is evidence of the stability and the worthiness of what he was teaching, what he was saying. And then we'll go ahead and finish here today. In 2 Corinthians 1, 23-24, he says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm and your faith. Like I said, as Paul's making the argument that his word, his teaching, his ministry, and his doctrine is stable, his plans weren't unstable either. Now he's switching back to the plans. The, the crux of the issue was because they were upset that he didn't come when he said he would come. He says, but there's a good and a godly reason that I didn't come. Remember when I told you earlier, he's talking about, uh, um, let's see, let's go back to that too far and he says right here it was by the grace of god that i didn't come down yeah that's okay hallelujah i'm used to having more slides i had less this time hallelujah you guys should be happy we're going to be out of here on time i think so he says uh he says but god i call god to witness against me we're back we're back to dealing with with uh, the issue here and he says i call god to witness against me and this is kind of like think about this in the sense of a lawyer calling a witness to testify of the truthiness of what's being happened he says i call god to witness against me basically i call god god is my witness that what i'm saying is true he says the reason i didn't come was to spare you i didn't come to spare you and this is an interesting thing because as he goes on to say, he says, not that we lord it over your faith. Because the, the first thing that I'm thinking when I read this is, uh, I came to spare you. Why did I come to spare you? Because I was going to come down there and, and, and just really let you guys have it for all your screw-ups and all your mess-ups. Because that's probably what, what most of us would think, that, that Paul's going to come down there and really let him have it. But he says, no, I didn't come to spare you from that. Not that we lord it over your faith. I didn't come to lord it over you. The truth is, is that that... Paul didn't give them their faith. 
Paul couldn't increase their faith. Paul couldn't do anything about their faith. That's a decision they have to make on their own to exercise their faith. And he says, so I wasn't coming down to Lord over all your... Because you remember, the first time the church was a mess. <laughs> he had to deal with so much. There was cliques going on. There wasn't unity. We talked about the guy sleeping with, the, the, with his father's wife. We talked about the, the, even the, the spiritual stuff was getting a mess because they were just getting crazy with speaking in tongues everywhere, freaking people out. Everybody thought they were drunk. I mean, the, whole, the place is a mess. And he says, I didn't come to spare you, not so that I could chastise you, not that I could lord it over you. I, I, Paul was saying, it's not my job to be your judge. But on the contrary, Paul's goal was to help them stand firm in their faith, to work with them for their joy, to help them increase. And a part of him not coming back was to make sure that they could stand firm in their faith, that they would grow. Because he had made the decision not to come back out of concern for the Corinthians' well-being. He, was, he cared about them particularly their spiritual well-being. And it wasn't a selfish reason that he didn't come, but I think he wanted to, to spare them the sorrow of his coming. Not that he was going to point fingers and tell them that you guys are all awful, you're all, you know, the, the whole uh, uh, fire and brimstone, you're all going to hell because you're doing everything wrong. But more in the lines of, have you ever had somebody you looked up to and you respected and you loved and you made a mistake and you had to go to them the pain that that causes, the sorrow, the hurt that that causes. He didn't want to come to them in the midst of their greatest weakness, but he wanted to give them the opportunity to fix things, to straighten things out. He wasn't there to point fingers and lord it over them, but he did want to, to, to spare them from the sorrow and the pain of having to stand before their spiritual father and say, look at the mess that we've made. But rather, they had the opportunity to straighten things out before he came back so that they could actually meet him and greet him and strengthen victory instead of in sorrow and in pain and in the agony of failure and defeat. And it's, it's obvious that he said it was by the grace of God and the Holy, he says, I don't do this of fleshly desires. This is obviously the intention of the Holy Spirit was to give them the opportunity to be victorious instead of face them in failure. So he says, I didn't come. It was actually for you guys. You know, as we look over this letter, I, I want to encourage us, church, is that we take the lessons that we learn from this stuff and we apply it in our own lives. The biggest issue that's going on so far is a giant misunderstanding of Paul's intention. And obviously they were listening to people talking into their ears. That's why, that's why gossip is so dangerous. That's why gossip's a sin. <laughs> Stay away from it. One, don't be a person that gossips, but don't be an open ear either. If you have to ask yourself, why does everyone always come to me with gossip? The reason is because you listen. If you stop listening, they would stop coming to you with gossip. And don't let that stuff infiltrate your life because... It can help with these misunderstandings. And misunderstandings can cause division. It can cause hurt. It can cause pain. And if you're on the, the other end of that, you're feeling that hurt and that pain, don't let it fester. Don't become a gossiper with somebody else and let it turn into something else. Talk about it. Bring it up. Because our goal is to show love to one another, to walk alongside one another. We don't want a mess. 
I mean, Paul, if Paul can get himself in this kind of mess, surely we can. So let's be wise about it. And we can make the choice to clarify and reconcile instead of becoming offended. And the truth is, how many know that becoming offended is a choice? You have to choose to be offended. Trust me, your life will be so much happier if you just always choose not to be offended. Even if they intended to offend you. <laughs> just don't be offended. You'll be a much happier person. But certainly, if we are careful to avoid misunderstandings, this is going to eliminate a lot of unnecessary hurt and pain. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head. Right now, I just want everyone to know that uh, God loves you more than you could ever imagine. God loves you so much that He sent His only Son to give His life for you on the cross. And Jesus, He didn't have His life taken from Him. He gave it willingly. You know, that's something that so many people misunderstand, thinking that somehow God forced Jesus to the cross. Some sort of cosmic child abuse. But the truth is, is that Jesus went willingly because He loves you. No matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how bad you've failed, Jesus loves you. And He gave His life willingly to pay for all of those mistakes, all of those failures, and all of those mess-ups. So this morning, I just want to give an opportunity for anybody here or anybody that's watching online to respond to that free gift. Now here's the reality. You may have gone to church your entire life. Going to church doesn't save you. You may have lived a very, very good life and not done all that many things wrong, but living that good life doesn't save you. You might have heard all the messages. You might have heard all the wisdom. You might have heard all the right things. And you might even go through the motions each and every single day. But none of those things will save you. The only thing that will save you is by receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. The Bible says that we must be born again. And that's how we're born again. So I just want to give an opportunity. If there's anybody here today that hasn't received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there's anybody online that hasn't, to just say this prayer with me. As a matter of fact, why don't you guys all just repeat this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You love us. And we thank You that You sent Your Son to give His life on the cross. He died the death that I should have died. And He paid the price that I should have paid. But I thank You that in Him I have been made brand new. That I am forgiven. And that I am free. And I now declare that You are my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you said that for the, the first time today, and maybe you've said it before, but this is the first time that you actually meant it. Then at this moment, a miracle just took place inside of you. Because God took out the heart of stone and He replaced it with a heart of flesh. And He's given you a brand new life. You're no longer who you used to be. So if that was you this morning, go ahead and shoot us an email. Go ahead and, and uh, uh, give me a call. Come up and speak to me. 
Because I want to pray with you. I want to celebrate with you. Because you are now forgiven. You are now free. You are now brand new. And you have an eternal inheritance with Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.